This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, next speaker um, is going to answer the question of what is it like to be a professional cyclist? What is that lifestyle like um, being on the road and racing your bike uh, as your profession? Um, Danny Holloway is a remarkable cyclist. He's raced professionally for five years at the Garmin uh, under-23 team, um, both domestically and in Europe. Uh, He's raced for Bissell, Kelly Benefit Strategies, and Rally GAC in the United Kingdom. Um, He's also been uh, a racer with the USA Cycling national team um, since 2004, both on the road and the track. So let's give a warm welcome to Daniel Holloway. Good evening, everybody. Um, Thanks for spending your time here with me this evening. And uh, it's a privilege to talk about a passion we all share, which is cycling. Um, This is a little bit of my journey. Uh, You know, being a cyclist and fortunately getting paid for it. You guys can, you know, follow me at uh, The Hollywood on Twitter and uh, D underscore Hollywood or Wood on Instagram for pictures and just 140 characters at a time of what it's like to be a a cyclist. Um, who remembers the first time they rode their bike? Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good time. Um, my first time, uh, roughly when I was three years old, um, you know, my dad, we were out in the, the front yard, and I said, I think it was time to, to try to remove the training wheels. And he said, all right. And we moved the, the right side and, you know, went around the, the right turn in the driveway you know, I did that pretty comfortably, and then we moved the left and tried the left-hand turn, and soon enough, I was, you know, riding on two wheels and, you know, getting further away. <laughs> um, you know, I decided that I wanted to show my grandparents that day that I could ride a bike, so he uh, told my sister to, to ride me over there and show them my new, my new uh, founded skill. That, uh, that trip was about three miles long with a stoplight or two and a set of railroad tracks. Um, just not that long ago, you know, it came up that my dad asked me if I ever remembered the, the first time that I rode my bike. And I told him that story, and it was one of the few times in my life that I've ever seen my dad tear up. Uh, these are a few of my career highlights. Um, 2010 professional criterium champion. 2007 was elite or amateur professional or criterium champion. Uh, I've been to Worlds as a track team member four times, uh, seven years on the national team. I've ridden uh, 12 professional six days, and I have six national titles to my name. Um, I'm also one of the youngest, I believe there's only a handful of us, that uh, have ever won both uh, pro and amateur criterium uh, titles. This is uh, me crossing the line in, in 2007. Um, there's a good story that goes along with this. Uh, but my dad was there to see, see me win my first title on the road. And this is, uh, this is 2010. This is my pr- first professional uh, championship. As you can tell, I have pretty similar faces. Uh, one, that face, you know, from being there is excitement, joy, you know, just... You're amped. That is pain 
suffering, and just those are the only emotions. <laughs> I, could, I don't remember the last 50 meters or the next 150 until I could start breathing again. Um, this first national championships in 2007, um, I just got back from Belgium. It was my first trip there uh, with the national team, and uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I got told stories of you know what to expect, spending time in the gutter, miles in the rain, and just living a lifestyle that you don't really live in the U.S. Um, we lived in a giant house. I think there was probably eight rooms. It could fit 30 riders. Um, you know, in basically a, a two-story home. You know, we, we shared four guys to a room and bunk beds, uh, very little personal space, and shared showers, and probably much like a college lifestyle that most people experience. Um, I don't really remember the races uh, for that trip that much over there, except for one. Um, it was my first stage race that I'd ever done. It was probably four days long, and uh, a couple days were, well, 100 miles or so. Um, and the only thing, that we, advice that we got as kind of first-timers was stay at the front. <laughs> and um, that's easy to say, hard to do. Uh, you know, you got 200 guys fighting for the top 10 positions. It's, it's just, it's hard with no experience. You know, the guys in Europe at a young age are much faster, uh, much stronger, and have a lot more experience in those conditions than most U.S. Uh, athletes is when we go over. Um, it was stage three. Uh, the front team was chasing down a breakaway, and things were getting dicey, 40, 50 guys back, and it clicked in, stay at the front. So I went out in the wind, put my head down, and was just moving, moving up the side of the group probably 30 miles an hour or something we were traveling. And uh, as I'm getting closer to the front, I'm seeing commotion between a couple of riders battling for the back of the, the team that's chasing. And over there, they get excited, they get amped, hands come off the handlebars sometimes, and words are spoken. And next thing I know, I see a large Belgian flying in my direction. And um, I, I don't have anything... To do, he just hits me, and I basically come to a stop right there on the pavement. Um, uh, with my experience of crashing, I'm come about me. I'm trying to get out of the way, as I know there's 180 guys behind me, you know, trying not to hit me. Um, I got hit. The guy was maybe 200 pounds, six three. He was, he was a large unit. Uh, <laughs> next thing I know, um, I'm kind of moving around in a ditch. Apparently, I kind of army crawled my way there after I got hit the second time and wanted to get out of the commotion for good. I'm laying there on the ground, and our director comes up in probably my terrible Belgian excellent, but, hey, Daniel, what, what are you doing on the ground, huh? You came out of a ditch. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know what happened. And I'm just laying there going, my day's over. I just need to collect myself. He goes, hey, get on the bike, huh? The mechanic changed the wheels for you. So I now have to continue racing simply because the mechanic put new wheels on my bike. <laughs> I said, okay, what else do I know? It's my first time, and I've flown a long way to race my bike. So I'm back on the bike, and in you know, high-level road racing, if you, know, you crash, you flat, you, know, you, you get a little assistance from a car. We call that motor pacing. 
Um, it's just kind of levels the field a little bit that if you have a mishap, you get a chance, and everybody in the field has the opportunity to do it. So I begin to motor pace back up to whatever group is in front of me. Um, and I start to hear my rear wheel flap, 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 and I'm just still concussed, not really sure what's going on. I, you know, look in the mirror, look through the car into the mirror of the director, and I just point at my rear wheel. And as I'm doing that with one hand on the bar at 40 miles an hour, my rear wheel goes bang. Uh, I kept it upright, pulled over to the side, got a new wheel change, and I asked Noel if I really had to do this. He said, yeah, you came a long way. So there I am again, back on the bumper of this car, trying to go as fast as I can and fixated between the two inches between my front wheel and the bumper of the car. Uh, I'm not really sure how fast I was going at the moment, but we were hauling. And uh, he honked the horn a couple times. My head comes up, and there's a large group in front of me. I make my way into the group, and I finish the day. Uh, Wrapping my head around the whole situation amongst my teammates, telling my war story, we all were all laughing and having food. I get a pat on the shoulder from a swanier and a thumbs up. It says, hey, good job today, huh? And I go, thanks. I just ate it. it. 20 minutes later, going back to the hotel, same same reaction from the mechanic. Yeah, good job, huh? Way to stick it out. Thanks. Later that, that night, getting uh, my massage for the next day, the swanier tells me that I was going 110K an hour behind the car. That's 65-some-odd miles an hour with a concussion in the middle of Belgium. It was apparently one of the fastest times or fastest speeds the director had ever motor-paced somebody back to the field. <laughs> Things happen when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so a couple um, things we're going to talk about is uh, kind of the 30 secrets of the pro cycling. Uh, you know, living the dream, the truth of what it takes to be a pro cyclist and the less desirable uh, saddle source are one of those things. Uh, physical aspects of cycling. The regular day is training, eating, sleeping, eating, sleeping more, and repeat. And then, you know, how to get involved um, other than racing. Uh, you know, if you guys got kids... And um, stuff for you yourself want to get more active in the community and, and group rights. So living the dream, you know, whose dream doesn't include not include an alarm clock? As, as a pro, we get to almost wake up when we want, go to work when we want, and almost call in sick whenever we want with no repercussions. Um, it's, it's nice being able to just roll out of bed when you feel good and take your time having breakfast and then looking at the clock at noon and heading out for a five-hour bike ride. Uh, you know, traveling the world. Uh, I've been to 21 countries and 40 states all on somebody else's dollar just by being a pro cyclist. A lot of those happened before I was 23. Uh, just, you know, been very fortunate to see the world um, doing something I love, you know, Shaving my legs, putting on spandex, and and smell, and smelling the fresh air. Uh, you know, being fortunate enough to have the best equipment in the world provided to me, um, on a whim, at the, you know, sending of an email or you know the end of a phone call that I need a new eight thousand dollar bike because I just crashed mine, or I need two hundred dollar tires because mine are wore out, or you know, new kit because you know I've washed it so many times.
you know, getting paid to ride my bike. Probably when I first started, I never thought that somebody was going to send me a paycheck to, to put my leg over the saddle and enjoy a, enjoy a bike ride. Um, setting out your, your goals and then achieving them is probably one of the most exciting things that, you know, I've, I've ever done. When I was 14, uh, I started racing the track and got involved and started seeing what events were out there, and I learned about the six days. Uh, for those who don't know, it's, you know, six days of racing back-to-back uh, on a velodrome. You know, in Europe, commonly it's 200 meters. Um, a little more history. If you didn't know, um, you know, it's called a Madison here in the States, and um, that's how Madison Square Garden actually got its name, that during that era um, was huge at six days. And back then, they used to race six days nonstop. One guy was always on the velodrome the whole time for six days. Then they passed a law, said that was unhealthy for some reason, and then <laughs> it's become shorter. Um, after the war era and all that stuff, it's become less prominent in the States and you know more prominent in the U.S., but that's how Madison Square Garden got its name. Um, so when I was 14, I learned about these things, and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to go there, and I want to race six days. Um, you know, it's... That environment nowadays is like a mafia. You got to know somebody to know somebody, and maybe cause somebody a little pain to get in. But you eventually get there. And I did that uh, my first six day when I was 21, and it was it was a wild ride. I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought I was just showing up to a bike race, and it was way different. It's a lifestyle there. Um, the way they treat six day riders is something other than any sort of professional road riding I've ever done. When you show up, you hand your swanier, basically your luggage. He opens it up. He pulls out your jerseys. He pulls out your undershirts. He pulls out your socks. He pulls out your shorts. He lays them out for you. Your shoes are dialed. Your, your helmet's cleaned. Your, your bike is set up, everything. Um, you know, for the swaniers, when we come in, you know, our shorts, we have our chamois creed applied for us every night. You know, we... Then, then race race time, you know, the mechanics holding our bike, we throw our leg over it, they push us off. When we come in, we don't even have to stop ourselves. We put out our arm, they catch us, they stop us. They stop, you know, we don't even have to use our legs for that. After every race, we get, uh, you know, our undershirt and our tree cot changed because it's unhealthy to sit in a, in a sweaty jersey. So we always have fresh, dry kit. Um, my first time experience that was just, was wild and, I shared a locker room with Eric Zobel. I'm not sure how many of you guys know who that guy is, but he's basically the best sprinter in the world. Um, as a German rider, we were at a German 16. It was actually his going away six for retirement. And um, to be a part of that as my first six day was, was pretty crazy. Um, we, they, uh, the Germans like to play this burping game that if you burp, you've got to put your thumb on your nose, and the last guy to do it gets smacked in the forehead. So... It was probably the fourth night, fourth or fifth night, and I'm cross-eyed from day one. You know, just it's a whole nother speed and, you know, physical level to me. So we're at the dinner table on the fourth night, and I'm just, my nose is in my plate, and I'm just lifting food into my mouth as, as fast as I could eat it, basically. Just clueless to the world, and apparently somebody burped, and I didn't get my thumb up. And Robert Bartko, this guy's about 6'4", 200 pounds, just whap, hand to the forehead. And my reaction was just back into my chair, right back to eating. <laughs> That's all I could think about was just that, that uh, eat, ride, sleep process that we, uh, we get into. 
uh, you know, some of the truths of, you know, of bike racing is the lack of job security. You know, how many of you guys would just sign a one-year contract to work with the company you had and not know what you're going to do the next year or the year after that? Um, you know, most of the time we race six months until we start panicking about what we're going to do for the next year. You, you have six, six months, more or less, for a lot of guys to get results to show that you're worth, worth a contract for the next year. And then it just becomes a scramble. You start uh, getting in this zone of just, instead of enjoying it, you start panicking, stressing that your fitness is off, you're getting flat tires, you're not finishing races, equipment's not working, and the world starts to turn against you, it feels like. You know, uh, for, for love or money, you know, a lot of people, you know, ride their bike out of love because they got something else to make money. But as a, as a pro, you know, you got to value yourself. You got to put money, um, you got to put a value on your head and say that this, this effort, this lifestyle is, is worth something financially. Um, you know, a lot of guys actually don't ride for a paycheck. And a lot of teams and, and sponsors know that, that they can get, you know, a third of their team for free because there's so many guys that want to live this, this glamorous lifestyle of a pro athlete in the U.S. that's, you know, driving a 15-passenger van across the country for 200 days living out of a Motel 6 as a good hotel. <laughs> yeah. You know, just um, showing up to race and, and not performing how you think you're going to perform, you know. You're setting Strava records one week, and the next you're getting dropped out of a, out of a group of guys you should never get dropped from. Um, showing up to race and not performing, you know, having eight guys, you know, work as hard as they can for you to get fifth in a sprint. You know, you got to live with going back to the team van and apologizing to eight guys that worked, almost ruined their chances for a result for you to get yours. And having that burden of, of not following up to eight guys' work is, is a big thing to live up, up to as a, as a sprinter or as somebody who's supposed to win races um, at the end of the day. You know, uh, I said, you know, driving in a 15-passenger van, you know, across the country, you know, a lot of the times, you know, we're gone, you know, 150 minimum days a year, you know, traveling, living out of a suitcase, um, sleeping in a bed we don't know, sh sheets that don't feel right, pillows that hurt your neck. You know, the most I've spent away from home is about 250 days um, one year, just team camps, U.S. national team projects, uh, traveling all over the U.S., spending a, too much time in airports. You know, that's that's a stressful part. You know, who's missed a flight before? You guys don't want to admit it? <laughs> um, that's that's a hard phone call to make to, to a director is that you missed a, missed a, a flight, and uh, they've got to change their whole schedule to because you didn't pay attention to your clock and uh, you missed a flight. Hopefully it didn't cost the team any more money than it already does. Um, I've spent my fair share of nights sleeping in in chairs worse than these in airports because weather that's out of your control and stuff like that, that you're eating, you know, 7-Eleven food at an airport, sleeping on the ground and using your backpack as a pillow. It's uh, it's not ideal to having the maximum performance the next day or, you know, a couple of days later, uh, you know, at one of the biggest races in the nation. Um, you know, some... You know, Continental Budgets, Jelly Belly, Optum, Bissell, these guys operate at a tenth, 
you know, maximum of the cost of a pro tour team that comes does tour California. You know, there's there's a couple teams out there that don't have the the financial means to have a swan year and stuff to to wash your clothes every day. So there's I've heard stories of guys having to wash their own clothes in what's argue, arguably the hardest race in the country for these domestic guys, and you know to have to do all those little things and still perform with the best riders in the world is is hard. And you guys, we deal with those expectations that you know when we come to a big race we have to perform. It doesn't matter if you know Andy Schleck is there, Mark Cavendish, Tom Boonen, Lance Armstrong, you know the best guys in the world, dope free or not, you're you're expected to keep up and play the same game they play. Uh, you know, crashing is definitely not ideal. To <laughs> I don't think for anybody that rides a bike, it sucks. Um, you know, I, you know, as that first war story, you know, racers crash a lot. It's just part of the job. Um, it's getting getting back on the horse and um, putting it in the back of your mind, but it does happen. You know, two years ago, I dislocated my thumb before I was moving to the UK to to live and race there for the year. Uh, making that phone call to that new director who had no idea who I was that I was showing up with a dislocated thumb is rough. Um, uh, my, my worst crash ever, probably uh, Malaysia in 2011. Uh, I just had the best winter of my life. I was training really well. I was, you know, weight, my weight was great. I was climbing with, you know, some of the best guys on our team that climb well. And I was putting out the biggest wattage I've ever put out in a sprint. So our first race in Malaysia was six days of just flat rolling roads, you know, ideal conditions for, you know, a fast guy like me and, you know, my lead out train that we brought. Uh, going to the last 2K, um, there was a right-hand turn with a median in it that nobody knew about uh, with the median. So they set up for a regular corner and, you know, the median popped up. So we all got pushed left and I was on the outside of the road and I was tight as I was trying to keep it I got I got bumped into the off the road and there was about a foot and a half concrete ditch you know there for there to you know just run rainwater through and it was about 90 degrees and uh I couldn't get my front wheel up in time to at least smack the rear wheel or potentially bunny hop it into the grass that was on the next side and I just remember my front wheel disappearing and then the sharpest pain I've ever felt in my ribs and then a girl scream. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> uh, I'm rolling. The, the wind's knocked out of me, and I've had plenty of experience with that, so I just try to tell myself to keep calm, and, you know, it'll come back. And this, the pain in my side just was there and there, and, you know, I was all I was thinking about was getting back on my bike to just get across the finish line and then eva evaluate the damage afterwards. I just had to finish the stage so I could start the next day. As I get up, the team director finally shows up in the caravan, and I just see wide eyes and him not trying to panic. And I had no idea, but I smacked my, my head pretty good, and I just started to kind of have a black eye and just kind of a purple forehead. But luckily I had my helmet on, and it saved my life then. But... He's telling me, sorry, we got, we got 10, 15 minutes to get across the line. You know, there's a time cut in every stage that allows guys to, you know, get dropped or have a flat or, you know, make it in after the, the finish. So it's no panic to, to really just rush on the bike. Let's just take your time and roll you across the line. And I sat on the hood of the car for what felt like forever, and I said, 
I don't care what the pain is, I just gotta get on there. I went to throw my foot over the bike and the pain was felt 10 times worse than when it originally happened and I had to put myself in the ambulance. It was a it was a trying time having the best fitness I've ever had and you know I had a race that I could potentially win win quite a few stages at and um, I'm in an ambulance on the way to a hospital in a foreign country. Uh, I was frightened for sure, but yeah, it's part of the process. But luckily, I had my director there saying it was going to be all right, and he was by my side. Uh, I got to the hospital. And it was a, Malaysia. It was a government hospital. You know, it was it was budget at best, open air. You know, you could see water stains in the ceiling, and I wasn't at ease being in a foreign country in a hospital that didn't look that great. Um, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have anything at the time to tell my parents that I was alive and barely kicking, but I was going to make it home. Uh, I spent four days in that hospital. Uh, I think all I ate was a ball of rice, and I didn't move from my bed. Uh, I was pretty high on drugs, which helped, but it, <laughs> it, it was just still a, a frightening time. Um, the doctors were, were average at best. It seemed like, you know, they said I had broken ribs and I could fly home in, in a week. Uh, their information was dodgy, and it scared my director. So he said, we're going to find you a different hospital. So at the end of the four days, you know, I was in a private ambulance to a better hospital that was similar to a Kaiser here and a much better doctor. He was uh, very thankful that I came in for a second opinion and didn't fly home right away, as that chances were that I had a, a small lesion on my lung, possibly a hole, that if I was to go up in the air, uh, I could have a collapsed lung and possibly die. That was pretty... Pretty eye-opening uh, to have that experience, and and very thankful that I had a um, a good director with a head on his shoulders to keep me safe. But probably the second scariest moment was stepping on that plane to fly home, knowing that the doctor said oh, we could, we couldn't tell you if it's healed or not, so you may or may not be be all the way healed. But with the two extra weeks you spent here, chances are you'd be pretty good. Um, so. I could still remember the sound and the smell and everything of that airplane as it took off the ground, and soon enough I was sleeping and I landed back in San Francisco. <clears throat> One of the most difficult things probably being a pro also is traveling your airports and riding next to strangers and just being asked the question, you know, what do you do for a living? Um, you say a cyclist. I think 90% of the time is, oh, do you dope? Uh, and, you know, most of the time I'm pretty speechless and say that's a pretty ignorant thing to ask um, just because a few bad apples rot in the tree. Um, and, you know, soon enough we break off into travels and talking about bike racing and everything else that leaves it behind. But it's tough that, you know, being associated just because I, I ride bikes for a living that I dope is, is a hard thing to deal with and it's and it's the truth that you have to, it's part of the decision you make as, as a bike racer to ask those questions. Um, the least, least desirable, probably part of the sport is, is um, you know, crashing. And, uh, you know, for me, saddle sores. In 2011, I also had a big, big problem with saddle sores that turned into staph infection. Um, you guys saw a couple pictures earlier of, of staph. No, that 
I would pray that I actually looked like that. Um, that, that was me on a good day. Um, back then, I wasn't uh, sure what was wrong with me. You know, I had, I'd never had saddle sores in my life before, and all of a sudden, they, they started popping up. Um, my very first one just felt like a, a small pimple, so instinct was to pop it. That's what I did all, all my years as a teenager and on my face. You just, you know, pop it and, you know, scrub it really good, and, and hopefully it goes away. That only made things worse for my saddle sore. Um, I was in France at the time with my team, and by the time we got to race day, I could hardly sit down. Um, so I made it through the first first stage, you know, hardly. It was a short day, you know, 75 miles. Um, not sure what to do. I had a, a teammate who had a lot of saddle sore problems who went through laser hair removal and surgery and other things, and he came up with this hob job of a thing that, Basically, we just made a donut kind of band-aid for, for that area to kind of relieve that pressure. Uh, it doesn't work too well as a cyclist. You know, you're just always moving and adjusting. And so for stage two, I spent probably 65 miles out of the saddle. I, I spent the last hour and a half by myself, um, you know, dropped off the back because I just couldn't keep up. And, you know, just spending time out of the saddle sucked. You know, it's... Not, I actually enjoy sitting in the saddle. So that was a very trying time. And after that, I went to a hospital in France. And, you know, I told them what I had, and they, they nodded their head. And I got into the, the not ER room, but just the doctor's room. And he was a young guy. I think he was fresh out of medical school, you know. And he says, okay, you know, let me see what's going on. And, you know, I pulled down my shorts and, you know, lay down on my back and, and show him. He was speechless. He, he had no idea what he's looking at. He was, I mean, he, you could see that he was really at a conundrum of, of what was going on. He disappeared out of the room for five, ten minutes, and then he came back and said, all right, we're, we're just going to numb you up, and I'm just going to slice it open and try to get it out of you. And um, so, you know, lidocaine and, you know, razor blade, he was down there for a while just trying to scoop it out and just pick out this infection that I had. And, uh, not all of it came out that day, but, you know, at least the pressure was gone and, you know, I could kind of sleep the next night. So for the next three days, I just, I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but I soaked soaked in a bath and, you know, just hot water and just try to, you know, pull this, pull this infection out of my body. Uh, by the time it was all out, you know, I could more or less stick my pinky in the hole that was left from this, this staph infection. Um, you know, I... I at that point, I was off the bike for two weeks, and my fitness was just going downhill after I'd already broken ribs earlier in the year. It's, it, was, it was a difficult time, and I had saddle sores more or less like that, a staph infection for the next six months um, all over my nether region. And, you know, now it's pretty much gone away, and occasionally I get a small one, but now I've got a lot more experience to deal with it. Um, and how I deal with it is, you know, I use, um, you know, proactive acting cream, you know, as soon as it pops up, I just put that on heavy and um, just try to, you know, just soak it in that whatever it is because it works. Uh, another thing that I was talking about is, you know, the job security and the least desirable part is you come to that six months, seven months into the season and nobody's got contracts. You get selfish teammates that start going against the plan of 
you know, we're going to lead this, this guy out or we're going to work for this guy and we're going to attack here. You get a lot of guys starting to ride for themselves and, you know, affect the team plan that, you know, you can only win races when the whole team is involved. Even one guy not playing by the rules can really mess up your team and not getting results for yourself, not getting results for the team can can lead to nobody getting contracts and the team disappearing because sponsors aren't happy. You know, it's 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 a fine line of what makes a sponsor really happy and what, what irritates them to say, I'm not going to put, you know, $500,000 into a into a pro team or just maybe it's 50 grand for a small sponsor and that 50 grand goes a long way to sending guys to bike races or uh, paying for a swan year or mechanic for the year some of the the physical stuff probably um, of, of bike racing is, is the training uh, you know some days are really easy you ride 30 minutes to the coffee shop, sit there for two hours, and then ride a half hour home. Sounds like a damn good day to me. But other days are six hours in the rain. You know, if you live in bad conditions, it's sleet and snow, but you got to get out there and do it. Um, you know, our average training day is probably one to six hours. Um, uh, you know, so that's anywhere from 750 calories to, to four to 5,000 calories just in a training day. Um, so just putting the, f- the fuel in is can be difficult in, in stage racing. Sometimes you know your jaw hurts more than your legs. Just trying to sit there and mow down eight nine thousand calories, you know, the whole day. You just kind of get bored of eating, you know, the pasta or whatever it takes to to fill you up. Sometimes you just don't even want to eat. Um, you know, dealing with injuries and illness. You know, most cyclists. I think I've, I haven't met a cyclist that at one point or time didn't have knee pain. Um, and that's I, I had my fair share. Um, I used kinesio tape and, and cold laser um, to take care of that. Uh, I think somebody who's going to be speaking later on in this uh, clinic is Pretense Stefan. He was uh, my team doc when I was part of the Garmin program, and he was one of the guys who uh, treated me and, and looked after me when I was young. Um, dealing, most guys have colds all the time. You know, from poor nutrition. Um, bad eating or just traveling airports so we deal with common colds a ton and you could have the perfect lead up to a bike race and then go to bed with a sniffle and wake up with an outright cold on you know the biggest race of your career or you know a race that's absolutely perfect for you and the team is has planned for you to go well that day so waking up with a cold is 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 terrible and you know we have to race with it we have to get out there and we can't say no um you know nutrition you know, luckily, when you train a lot and you're racing, you can eat whatever you want for the most part, everything in moderation, right? But, uh, you know, it's you can't just be mowing down cheeseburgers and chocolate cake. Even 9,000 calories of that stuff is bad for you. So we, we just have to spend a lot of time making sure we eat the right stuff, you know, at the right time. Um, and a lot of guys don't know that, you know, what they're tolerant or intolerant to. You know, lately big kick the past four years five years is you know gluten-free and that a lot of guys are have a, a bad tolerance to it and you know some guys that go gluten-free all of a sudden become really well lose the their love handles and start flying around the mountains um you know other guys it's you know do you race better on oatmeal or do you race better on wheaties or you know can you have eggs and bacon or you just have to keep it really simple you know and that's one thing that we are constantly experimenting with is, is racers is what works and what doesn't for us. And so we're always trying and, and changing our routine. And But 
you know, we, we always pick one. If something works really well, we stick with it pretty, pretty good. Um, I've already talked enough about crashing, I think. Um, you know, brain health, staying mentally fresh. Um, you know, we, we go through a lot as, as bike races, I think. And, you know, one day you just have the worst day of your life on the bike in a race, and then it's, it's not giving up in that moment. You know, you have a seven-day stage race, so it's, it's sticking to it. It's going, I'm just going to recover and do everything I know how to do to recover, to be ready for the next day. Um, and, you know, for me, that instance was 2010. I was in a six-day race in France. Um, by stage six, I couldn't walk up or downstairs. My legs hurt to touch. I, could, I couldn't get massages for the last two days because it was too painful. And um, I just told myself to keep going. And that, that morning... I made the joke of, oh, I'm just going to make the breakaway. And, you know, then my day is done. As long as I make that breakaway, I've achieved my goal. And whether I get dropped or however it finishes, it's however it turns out. But I just want to achieve that goal. And at this point in the race, you know, the breakaway was going away pretty early. Um, just let the break get a couple minutes, and the, the leader, leader's team will, will chase it back, and then sprinter's teams will help finish it off. And so, lo and behold, I found myself in the breakaway in the first 30 kilometers of the race. And, I just relax. I go, man, goal is done. I don't care what happens next. You know, I've, I've done everything I want to. And um, I just, you know, do my normal eating and drinking. And, you know, we get to the half point of the stage and the gap is still three minutes. And it's not closing. And as soon as we get closer to the line and, you know, the brakes come down a little bit, but I start feeling better. I don't feel my legs and, you know, I'm not breathing that hard and things start to turn around. We, we're getting closer to the finish, and it, the terrain gets more rolly, and our breakaway breaks up, and it's just you know four of us at this point off the front, and I'm just looking down, going, "Why am I here? I don't need to, I don't need to be here. I've already achieved my goal." And I say, "Wait, wait, wait! You're here. Let's make the best of it," you know. And um, a couple guys had ended up bridging bridging up to the four of us uh, with about 15k to go before a climb, and. My director comes up, he says, there's one last climb. You just make it over this and we're home free. And, you know, up this, you know, 2K climb, I, I suffer and suffer and suffer and make it, make it over the top with the rest of the breakaway. And from there he says, all right, you do no work to the finish. You know, it's not your responsibility to do no, no work. But I looked at him and said, I feel all right. I'm going to rotate. And he goes, no, don't do it. You know, and I just brush him off and say, you know, I feel all right. And I start playing the tactics game and, you know, I just I'm up and off here and there and, you know, just making sure that, you know, I do my fair share a little bit and make sure I don't, I'm not too big of a target for just sitting on. As we get closer to the finish, it's going to the line and I start thinking about winning a bike race that I didn't even want to be a part of after after 30 K's. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we make the left turn and it's, you know, basically one K up a a two percent false flat. You know, you could see the finishing line banner way up there and we make this left turn and I go, you know, I could do this. And um, one guy flies up the side and I play patience and somebody else chases him down. Another guy launches off and I play patience and, you know, another guy chases him down and I see the 200 meter sign and I go, this is my time. And another guy takes off. I panic and I just sprint, sprint after him. I get in his draft and I pass him for the win. It, it was my first race that I've ever won in Europe, and it was after six days of 
not walking up up and down stairs, a part of a race that I didn't want to be a part of after 30Ks. So it's just, you know, having that healthy brain and staying, staying focused that I was able to get the job done that day. And then one last story that uh, I would like to tell. On that, that first trip from Belgium, uh, after crashing and motor pacing at 70 miles an hour or whatever with a concussion, um, four days before I was planning to go home and, and do nationals, I got the flu. I mean, it was the worst flu I've ever had. I went from soaking mattresses with sweat to being freezing cold with every piece of clothing I had on with me wrapped in, in comforters. And by the time, you know, looking that I was going to fly home to nationals, I, I didn't want to race. I didn't see the point. I was, you know, knocked out. I hadn't been drinking. I hadn't been training. And I flew to Chicago and I met my dad. And I said, you know, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do. And he took me to the hotel and I, I slept for 20 hours. I got back up. The next day, it was a Thursday. I rode, you know, he's like, all right, you know, see if you can spend. I got 15 minutes on the rollers. And I went up, then I went back to bed. The next day, I had breakfast, meandered around. I rode 30 to 45 minutes on the rollers on the Friday, and then went back to bed. Saturday, there was a, a pro-am race. It's half, half the distance of the pro race. It's 50Ks. Um, most of the time, you know, 50% of the peloton doesn't even finish the race. It's just an opener. It's to get a feel for the course, feel for your legs, and it's not taken all that seriously. I didn't have a choice but to only do about a third of it. Uh, I went back to the hotel room depressed, you know, not motivated and uneager to do anything. I said, I'm sick. I don't have a chance. You know, the, you know, I, I can't even finish, you know, uh, a 50K race, let alone the, the 75K race the, the amateurs have to do. My dad just said, hey, it's, it's all for experience. You know, you've got plenty of time to win one of these things and, you know, just go out there and see what you can learn, you know, teach yourself how to survive when things are bad and, and, and whatnot. So come Sunday, it's, it's pouring rain, you know, it's a Chicago summer rain, so it's not that cold, but it's wet out. Uh, I do my, my average warm up at best. I'm on the rollers, just lightly getting the circulation, you know, under, under nodding and my dad disappears to find water and stuff. I, so I, I check my clock and say, you know, it's, it's time to kind of head to the start line. I close up the car and start rolling. I see my dad to say our last words. I go, I apologize. I locked the keys in the car. <laughs> he about wanted to punch me. I told him there was a cop around the corner he could probably get help with, and that was the start of my race. You know, I was on the finish line, you know, worried about my dad with this locked the keys in the car, and I, you know, I felt pretty bad for it. And the race, the race started, and. I had zero expectations that day. Just I was going to roll around and see what happened. Lo and behold, you know, my legs were there. You know, it was end up being the best I've ever felt on my bike. Um, I could do anything I wanted, whenever I wanted, however I wanted that day. I mean, if I could close down a 20-second gap. I could attack at whim, and, you know, I, could, I was controlling the race as a one-man show. You know, that's how good I felt that day. Um, I had I'd one year previous experience on that course and where I needed to be the last couple of corners, and that was my sole focus the last three laps was that it, I was to be no further back than fourth coming to the second to last corner, and I came through fifth. 
luckily the guy who let it through came in too hot in the wet and you know took himself really wide into the curb and now I was fourth going into the final corner I was I was third but you know the guy I was behind was catching a guy that attacked um you know I just kept my head on my shoulders left a little bit of a gap to take the run and if those guys crashed I kind of had a clear window um, there's a picture I unfortunately don't have, but it's me smiling coming out of that corner because I knew that I just I had an opportunity to win. Um, the next 150 meters were pretty much a blank until I got to the finish line, and you saw that face earlier of just pure joy and, and happiness that it, it came around that day. Um, that was this, probably the first time I've ever seen Dad. My tears in my dad's eyes of uh, of just pure happiness that it was a it was a journey that we both traveled together of ups and downs and lefts and rights and a lot of struggle. So, you know, that's that's my story on my first national championship on the road with my dad. Thanks for coming out. Anybody got any questions? Anything? Yeah. I'm curious, sir. Uh, a uh, starting rider on a, you know, uh, uh, even a local team. What do they get paid for a year? What? Uh, so, what does a, a starting professional get? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some guys that literally get a bike, clothing, and you know their their travel expenses. There's no, there's no salary. You know, for some guys that is, you know, 20 years old and has showed some talent, but. You know, he's he's unpredictable. You don't know what you're going to get, and teams and directors know that. So you know, so, so more often than not, there's a guy that says, "Hey, I'm worth ten thousand dollars," and there's a guy, there's a kid that'll ride for free. You know, when their results and their expectations are the same, the guy's going to pick the guy that's going to ride for free. Yes, sir. How do you know when it's time to do a recovery day or more, more critically a, an actual day off the bike when you're in a normal training cycle? Um, so for most people, it's a 2-1, it's 2-1 a schedule. So you do two days hard, one day off, two days hard, one day off. Um, as your fitness grows and your goals go, you can do three days on, one day off. Um, and I rotate that one day off as an easy spin, and then the next one day off is completely off the bike. Um, but that's still stretching that's still core work that's still you know using my muscle stimulator my you know my leg compression that i have um so it's it's not a day off that you know you're just sitting on facebook with a pint of ice cream you know you're still you know paying attention to yourself yes ma'am daniel i know you speed skated so how did you make the decision to go one direction versus the other yeah, um, I grew up on skates. Basically, as soon as I could walk, my dad put me on skates. Um, I grew up on, uh, you know, roller skates and then inlines, and then shortly after was short track speed skating. Um, when I was 13 or so, you know, I was getting bored in the summers and probably becoming a little too rowdy, so my dad, you know, wanted found the local velodrome. In the beginning, I didn't even want to have anything to do with it. You know, I was this is scary. I'm not, no brakes, fixed gear. You know, I don't like this, and... You know, he said, oh, no, I just try it. So I went out there and found bike racing. And it was just an evolution of speed, if you will, that, you know, one thing was faster than the next. And next thing you know, you're motor pacing 70 miles an hour behind a car. <laughs> <sighs>
Anything else? Yep. Uh, what's your typical training volume in a year? Training volume in a year. Let's do probably 15 hours a week for 50 weeks. So what is that, 10,000 hours? Something like that. But that's on the bike. That's not including core work, stretching, CrossFit, hiking, you know, just as a professional cyclist, it's, it's not about the bike. It's not all about the bike riding. You know, we, you know, we train 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, as a professional cyclist, recovery is almost more important than the training itself, making sure that we sleep eight to 10 hours to, for our body to heal the damage that we do to it day in, day out, you know, with the six hour rides and, you know, riding and training and the, the freezing cold, you know, we need the recovery time. Yep. I'm curious as to how long, like, the, the time span you, you leave, the, like, on race day between, like, eating breakfast and then getting to the start line, or, like, mixing your warm up in, in between. Is it, like, within a few hours? Or so, typically, like, the European method is you have your meal three hours before race time. So, if it's a 12 o'clock start, your breakfast is done at 9. Um, some guys mix in, you know, something with an hour to go, whether it's, you know, a Lara bar or a rice cake or something. Uh, but roughly it's the three-hour f- for a meal. Everybody's different. Um, I did a race in, in Missouri. It was 105 degrees, 99% humidity. It was awful. Uh, a teammate and I went, we had Chipotle probably about three and a half, three hours before the race, kind of your typical, you know, just monster burrito covered in salt because it was going to be a hot day um i did i did great my, my burrito went down nice and well and you know i had another good day and about probably 45 minutes into the race we were in a breakaway and my teammate was there and said how you feeling he's like i'm about to throw this burrito up <laughs> you know so it's it, everybody's different you know we had the exact same meal at the exact same time and here he is ready about to throw up and i'm just i want to attack Yes. So when you're in a season, are there, is there any other activities you can do So during a training season, you know, off-season during on-season. So off-season, we definitely have the ability to venture off and go for hikes, um, you know, kind of stretch the body in a different way. It's, it's really good to work muscles that we, we don't get to work in the season, you know, just sitting, doing that just lateral or, you know, up and down you know, vertical movement we do, you know, going for hikes and doing CrossFit, um, doing core. A lot of guys do yoga um, and Pilates to to work our core muscles and, and strengthen our support system as much as we can while we have the time. So when we're traveling and racing, we don't have the time and energy to put into all the, the strength of those uh, muscles. So for us, most of the time, that's October through January, possibly February is the time we spent a, a lot of time working on those other activities. Um, that's our off season. Thanks again, guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.